0: Hi, everybody. My name is Remy. Welcome to the For the Love podcast with your host, Jen Hatmaker, my mom. She writes
1: books and speaks to crowds, but she mostly loves talking to amazing people on this podcast every week. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show. Hey, everybody, it's Jen Hatmaker. Welcome to the show. This is the For the Love podcast, and today we are wrapping up our amazing series called For the Love of Exploring Our Faith. This has been one of my very favorite seasons on the podcast thus far. And so if you don't know this, at the end of every series, we crowdsource an episode. We're like, this is what we're talking about. This is our theme. You guys tell us who is somebody that you know, um, who is somebody that you want to hear from in this space. And so um, when I put this out, Universally, um, everyone has said, "Please, please, please, you've got to put on Brett Trap." So Brett is a f- been my friend now for one year, and you are absolutely going to love him. And I am so thrilled he was nominated. So he's a marketing consultant and he's a creative. He lives in um, Cabbage Town, this really cool, historic, culturally rich neighborhood in Atlanta. So recently, Brett kind of walked away from this nine to five gig with corporate America, and went on to pursue his dream of storytelling. So here's what we're going to talk about today. So for nearly a decade, well, really more than that, Brett sort of kept this journal of thoughts on being gay and Christian and a pastor's kid. And one morning in late 2016, he logged onto Facebook and he started telling this story in this um, basically – web series, a written web series called Blue Babies Pink. And so he's it's the most delightful, whimsical, engaging, often hilarious account of what it was like being the son of a Southern Baptist pastor in a small Alabama town and gay. And so we're going to talk all about that, and we're going to link to that. So um, Brett's 36. Um He grew up and went to college in in Alabama, and he has later settled over in Atlanta. So his mom was a teacher, dad is a Southern Baptist preacher, he's got two older brothers, and um, he grew up. Fully immersed in Christian subculture. So um, his story is warm and generous. He is super funny, which is a major bonus. And I'm so excited for you to get to hear his story today. His story of coming out, his story of reconciling his faith, ultimately his story of getting married. Um, and so this is not really his attempt. This is it's not Brett's way to like convince or prove or defend. That's just not the way he is. And you will see that if you don't already know him. Um, this is just his story. It's a human being's story. And so I am so excited um, for you to pull up a seat to his table today and take a listen and if you don't already love brett trap you are about to fall in love with him so um, i'm so thrilled to welcome him to the show okay so it is my just delight to welcome to the show today my friend brett trap hi What's up Jen? I'm happy you're here. (laughs) How's it going? Thank you. I'm excited to be here. You're such a gamer. You're just like, sure, why not? I'll come on your podcast. I, um, I have been so lucky to get to know you in the last, when did we meet first? 2017, I believe maybe April. Yeah. Yeah. So just, it's been about a year. Um, and, um, um, a friend of mine put your story in my hands and said, I just think that you will love to read this. And I think that you're going to love this person. And, um, and I surely did. And I think I reached out to you not long. A- I mean, I read it probably in March and did I reach out <laughs> to you in April? <laughs> I, th- I think something like that. Yeah. Or maybe a little before that. perhaps. Okay, maybe it was, but, um, I appreciate so much you just jumping in the fray with me and being my friend. And we have since spent time together in, like at least three or four times. And so some of my people, some of my listeners know who you are. They know about your story because I introduced you to my entire tribe last year. Um, but we've got new, we've got people listening in for the first time. So if you don't mind indulging me, I want to kind of go backwards with you a little bit. So you're a preacher's kid. I'm a preacher's oh, yeah. kid. Um, now, my dad was not like a super straight laced preacher, but he was Southern Baptist, as was your dad, right? Correct. Yep. Um, yep. And so both of us grew up a little bit under a microscope, if you will, um, and in the South, no, no less. Um, and then later Midwest for me. So I wonder if just you can talk a little bit before we move forward in your story about your perspective growing up as a PK Thanks, Jen. I,
0: I loved it, to be honest. I thought it was the best. I mean, uh, I grew up at Woodmont Baptist Church in Florence, Alabama, just a fantastic, you know, pretty traditional faith community in the South, you know, in the mid 90s. But, um, you know, being a pastor's kid in a small town in the South, at least, it's like a Southern form of royalty, almost, you know, like I took pride. That's
1: true. You know, I took pride yeah. in
0: like being the preacher's kid and like, you know, seeing your dad up on the stage every week was really cool. You know, obviously he had a key to the church, yeah. so we'd be in the church, you know, and no one else was there. And, um, I really, I really loved it. You know, I think to be honest, Jen, I was so well-parented. Uh, you know, I never felt the pressure of having to be a certain way. And I have some friends who were PKs who that was a huge issue for them where, they had a lot of pressure to, you know, look right, act right, stand right, talk right, or else. And my parents just never did right. that, which I view that as such a huge blessing as I, I had the freedom to to be a kid, to make mistakes. And so, yeah, all of my memories from back then are of, you know, Fourth of July picnics and church league basketball and church youth group uh, trips. And, you know, so, so I have a ton of great memories. And though it was, you know, a traditional, again, very traditional conservative church, it was not overly rigid. And I really sort of attribute that now to I think the church was a reflection of my dad's spirit. My dad was a very, a great man, sort of a soft spirited person, but very loving, very kind. And I think that uh, that the church reflected that. And I'm, I'm sure they shielded me, you know, from typical church drama that that exists. So I, I don't have memories of that, which I think again that that's I chalk that up to to really good parenting. But looking back, I am just so thankful for that church experience for that group of people at that time of my life. You know, for me, I think my 20s were about sort of being critical of that, you know, how I grew up of that church environment. But in my 30s, it's been about how grateful I've been for that and the the investments uh, that came into my life from that experience, from those people, um, and I'm just such a, I think I'm such a better person, and I think a lot of my character and integrity was forged in that environment, and um, yeah, I'm just, I'm really thankful for that now.
1: Um, this is one of my favorite things about you, and and we'll get to it, but you're very, you're so generous um, toward your childhood, toward your parents, toward the church that raised you. You and I actually share that in common, Mike. Um, my parents did not put any weird pastor kid expectations on us, and um, so we didn't grow up sort of under that yoke either. And one of the most fun things about having a pastor's a pastor as a dad is like we played hide and seek in our church it was one of my favorite memories because all could. the time, all the time, um, <laughs> yeah. So I I really love that you said that. And so moving forward, um, you had been kind of privately journaling years, really. Um, about your your story of this very normal boyhood full of sports and brothers and and your christian parents and upbringing and um and then slowly and and i would love for you to walk us through this a little bit but coming to this realization that you know what i don't i'm not attracted to girls like my brothers and like my guy friends and so this led to sort of beginning to wrap your mind around the possibility of what that meant, that you might be gay. And so that had to have been, I don't know what, isolating, lonely, probably scary um, in the context of the world that you were living in. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that season, that sort of reckoning, um, um, that portion specifically, when this was kind of internal and private and maybe even unsure. Could you talk a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, I had a, um, you know, what I would consider a traditionally sort of masculine Southern upbringing, you know, there was high school basketball and football in college. I was in a fraternity, you know, um, I had lots of, you know, close female friends all through life, particularly in high school, but they never really evolved into much more than that. You know, and and I wrote about this in Blue Babies Pink, the blog, but there was a book that came out called I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which I'm.
1: Oh, don't
0: I know it. Right. Were
1: you in the dating zone when that book came out? Was that part of your I was I, I was just north of it, but it it was everywhere. I mean, that's what everybody was reading and, you know, written by a 21-year-old author. <laughs> right exactly. <laughs>
0: the- that's, that's another podcast for another- <laughs> Yes, it is. <laughs> But you know, back then it was it was viewed as virtuous if you did not date in high school. It was a sign right. of your godliness, and so that kind of, to be honest, created a, a smokescreen for cover. me. Yeah. Cause, so I didn't really have the pressure because I was the the youth group leader who you know was setting the example for the others, and so I, I didn't have time to be distracted by girls F because course. I was so focused on God. You know. <laughs> so looking right. back, I it obviously, a cringe delightful at that cover. Hat. Yeah, exactly. It was very convenient. Looking back, it's, it's cringeworthy, but, but no, Mm -hmm. like I definitely began to notice then, like, I just, I loved girls. I still love girls, but I, -hmm. I, I've described it as I found girls and still today find them as beautiful, but not Mm -hmm. sexual or sexy. So I just wasn't attracted to girls. And so high school turned into college and it really was this sort of slow, creeping revelation of like, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not into girls. And obviously I began to notice guys and I was like, wait a minute, like,
1: right.
0: am I gay? Like, I can't be gay. Like gay is this thing, like way out there in another universe. Like I'm in Florence, Alabama. There were right. no gay people. There was nothing pro-gay, yeah. you know, this, this was a very different time, obviously in the mid nineties. And so, um, I just, I think I went into just total denial, you know, it was just like, yeah, bury that little thought as deep into the Mm. back recesses of my soul as I could and just forge ahead and obviously to create even more smoke screens. And so doing more increasingly masculine things to try to keep people from kind of noticing this. And so, you know, Jen, you asked about a support system at that time in my life, you know, there was no support system. It was, it was me and Jesus. You know, Uh, I, I came to faith about the age of 14 at a, at a charismatic revival and just for lack of a better term, was radically saved, you know, like fell in love with mm-hmm. Jesus, got began to get to know him, was discipled by my youth pastor. And so for me, you know, the kind of the gay thing, it was actually a very motivating thing to be like, all right, Brett, if, if you focus and if you get... Super focused on Jesus, that thing will go away. That is a tumor that you can kill with enough prayer and fasting or whatever totally um and so but i that was all internal it was all just me and that and that really is one of the really. Uh, the dark sides of being in the closet is you are bearing you are bearing a thousand pound burden all alone, mm. and and at that time of my life there was there was no one that felt safe to come out to because and and for me it wasn't worth it because in my mind I was like well this is going to go away this will correct itself this will eventually work its way out of the system and so there's no point in bearing that burden and the shame of being quote unquote, you know, gay in a culture that worships masculinity right. and gay at that time and still is in some ways is the opposite of that. That's right. And I, I wanted no part of that.
1: Mm. I want to um, kind of press into something you just said. So um, you talked about, you know, kind of grappling with these two conflicting parts of yourself being, being in a state of denial, seriously thinking, well, s- somehow I'll just act a certain way or lean into certain things, or I will cure myself or some cure will magically appear from the outside or something like somehow this will not be true for me. Somehow this will not be, um, my reality. And so you did a Ted talk a couple of years ago about this. And, um, I actually just watched that a couple of weeks ago and it was so good. It was just so good. I wanted everybody in the world to see it. You're such a, well, you're so, you're a gifted communicator, but it was just really profound and it was really hard to hear you talk about that and, um, and how you coped, you know, as you just mentioned with all these very masculine endeavors and um, all the while telling yourself, and it was just so sad to hear you say it, but just, I don't need love. I don't need love. I don't need it. I don't need it. And that just felt so lonely. And my heart just kind of shattered when I hear you say that. So I wonder if you could guide us through that season right there, how you finally, from telling yourself that or trying to convince yourself that, um, to reaching the point of acknowledging your very human, ordinary need for love and human connection and and can you can you walk us through the first early steps of how you began to reconcile um, that very normal human part of who you are against this faith portion that's telling you you could not have both? Yeah, I really created
0: sort of an ecosystem of distractions, for lack of a better term, because at this time, you know, in my mid twenties, I was convinced that you know, obviously being gay is wrong, acting on it is wrong, yeah. and so I had I just went all in on, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to be single and celibate. This is my calling in life. This is how I'm going to honor God. And that's, Brett, that is, that's just your lot in life. You need to accept it. You need to make peace with that. And so, you know, to be honest, Jen, I did, I think I did everything right in that season, really for about 15 years. I mean, uh, you know, Bible study, prayer, fasting, um, you know, I, I traveled a lot, had incredible friendships. I had a great job that was fulfilling. I made good money. And my, and my greatest strategy in the midst of that was community. To me, community was the antidote to say, Brett, you know, you're not going to have like these needs met. But if you have really healthy community around yourself, that will be the that will be the not the cure to take this way, but that will be what sustained you.
1: Well, and and obviously, you know, that people are still saying that, that that is still something that we hear a lot of people of faith say that, well, this is, this is the, the, you know, your lot in life. And, and this is what we'll do to solve it is just come around you and be your church family. Um, and so I'm interested to hear you talk about this and how that ultimately, is just not enough. It isn't.
0: Right and I listen I am pro community to this day I mean I think it is the one of the keys to emotional health one of the keys to life is having people in your life who know everything about you they love you they're there for you the whole thing and so that was my plan but you know as I got into my late 20s that loneliness uh that sense of loneliness increased you know you you kind of begin to lose friends to marriage you know and family you know your single buddies once they get married they don't hang out as much and so um and I got to a point to be honest where I could barely even be around groups of married couples. And it wasn't like a spiteful thing, but it was just the crushing sadness of seeing, seeing people do life in what at that time seemed to be the right and healthy way. And in the back of your mind to hear that voice that says, Brett, That is not for you. You'll never have that. Stop desiring that. In fact, that even you desiring that is filled with, with wickedness and evil. And so that's where, yeah, the Ted talk, I talked about this little mantra where it was just this little self-speak of Brett, you don't need love. You don't need love. You don't need love. You don't need a companion. You don't need a family. That's for, you know, and so it was just, it was a self brainwashing and what happened over time, uh, that sort of metastasized into anxiety. And, and you want to talk about a person, Jen, who should not have been dealing with anxiety. I mean, when it comes to the you know privilege, like i have I have had all the privileges, you know yeah. like I mean I've had them all and yeah. so a great yeah. family yeah, you're and successful,
1: like successful, you're charming, you're good looking,
0: yes, yeah. yeah, right? you really
1: did. Friends who loved you,
0: yes. Right, but when you live under this uh, cloud of shame nonstop, it, I, you know, it wrecks your body. And yes. so literally, I mean, I had two trips to the hospital with, yes. you know, these, I was having all the symptoms of a stroke one time. Another time I thought I was having a heart attack. And I'm literally thinking, you know, Brett, you're you're cracking up and you're not even 30 years old. You know, and, and what I've learned now, Jen, is this is not uncommon. Lots of LGBT people go through some phase like this of just Tons of anxiety, and so I got to a point where I was like, I, "Brett, you can't do fifty more years of this." You know, like you're cracking up now, uh, and so I realized I just I could not live that way anymore. And that was really, to be honest, the first time I allowed myself to kind of question the theology side of this because I had not, honest to goodness, I had not been out, you know, trying to justify, you know, like researching different things. I I pushed all that out of my life because I didn't want again, to go down this path. But when I came to this breaking point, um, I just realized that, you know, the more, what I'd learned previously before this was the more I walked with God, the freer life became, the more joy that kind of burst forth. But for whatever reason with this piece, it was like the more I leaned into this thing I thought God wanted me to do, the more crushing that it was. Yeah, And, uh, and that's, that's when things began to change for me. And that's when I began to, to kind of open up the theology piece to really investigate that more closely.
1: Can you talk about that a little bit? Because, um, you know, I think a lot people are a lot of people are listening who have also never uh, opened up the theology piece for investigation or for examination, and they might be surprised to discover that there is a. Enormous body of very robust hermeneutics and theology and interpretations um, out there to study and to learn from that might really surprise them from what they've always just kind of been handed. I mean, I know in my life, this is probably the same for you. We didn't even, this wasn't even a conversation. We didn't even talk about this. It was just a foregone conclusion, and it wasn't something we examined or studied. And so, um, you know, as you know, I'm I obviously am affirming, and it that taking a, a turn into that body of scholarship was. St- for me, stunning and shocking and surprising and um, very disorienting. And so I, I wonder if if you wouldn't mind talking for just a few minutes about when you finally uh, even gave yourself permission to even look, take a peek at that, um, what you found, what you learned, what you discovered.
0: Yeah, it's been several years of submerging myself in all that stuff. I mean, to be honest, Jen, I, I can... I have researched and read and, and listened to so much. You know, I, I can make a case on either side of the of mm. the canyon and, and be fairly convincing uh, because I've mm. consumed so much because it's relevant. This is relevant to me. You know, and this is what people forget is this is what I this is not what I or this is what I call sidewalk theology. You know, there is there is a category of people in evangelicalism who they 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 do theology recreationally. Even though it has no bearing on them, their person, their their livelihood, and, and listen, when you do theology that way, you can come to very easy black and white conclusions, particularly for things that don't fall in your orbit, so to speak. And so, so for me, it was the process of beginning to read some of those things. And I, I don't personally get into the the long form theology this because others have done it so much better. Books that you and I have both read, and you can literally Google that stuff. But I, but I will say this, you know. For me, it really came down to a lot of very practical things. Um, You know, the fact that humans are universally designed for companionship. This is undeniable. You know, as soon as we reach, you know, basically middle school, people begin compulsively looking for, you know, someone to pair off with. This is human nature. And it's and the, the this this debate is often framed in terms of sex, but it's that's not that's not the primary thing. You know, we are programmed to desire companionship, to desire intimacy. And and here's, you know, I look at it this way. We've heard you and I both have heard so many stories at this point of of what this theology how it plays itself out in real people's lives. I view it it's like, a, it's like a dangerous curve in a road. And a lot of us are watching, we're watching cars go around this curve. And every now and then, you know, a car speeds around the curve and they go off the road into the ditch and you know they blow up, you know, the, it's a fatal accident. And a lot of us have been watching cars come around this corner time after time, crash after crash. And the metaphor I'm using here, obviously, are the LGBT people who are Devastated and hurt by some of this thinking, and some of us are just saying, you know what maybe it's time to to look at this road, look at that curve, to look at the speed limit and and I really question I think that's what a lot of us have been doing I think Jen what you started a couple of years back to say, can we just have a conversation about this this particular turn in the road um and and that that's not to invalidate you know uh, all the other pieces are connected to that but but for me, it really came down to just allowing myself to ask why, if this is such a true thing and if God is behind it and the the Jesus that I believe in that is so full of joy and grace and mercy, why is that thing causing so much destruction in so many people's lives? Um, and so I just, you know, I came to a belief that, that God God is against any theology that institutionalizes suffering for an entire class of people. And And some people may think that's a dramatic statement, but To be told and to be forced to be single and alone for your entire lifetime, I do think that is an institutionalized uh, suffering for an entire class of people, you know, and and I've been told, I was told and still told, you know, Brett, you just need to take up your cross and bear it. And and I say, you know what, I I do, number one, I do take up my cross in lots of ways and I deny myself and am a follower of Christ. I said, but we are not called to take up a boulder or to take up a house, you know, like that was a boulder that I tried to shoulder, you know, for a long time. And it did not reap, it did not reap any kind of positive thing in my life. It only reaped, you know, increasing amounts of sadness and angst and anxiety. And again, this is repeated in the lives of LGBT LGBT people. Time and time again. So, this is, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a long journey and a long story. That's just a tiny sort of snapshot of, of how I've processed through it.
1: You know, for me, um, when I first gave myself permission also to examine the curve, um, it was exactly what you said to me. It was the carnage and, and not the occasional carnage, the near constant carnage on that bend in the road that um, just as a human being caused me to go, something here is not right. And it was, frankly, to be honest with you, it was. It was stories like yours specifically that drew me in even tighter because um, you were in the LGBTQ category in which you were very actively, if not denying your sexuality, at least denying yourself permission to be fully who you were. You were celibate. And right. you were single and you were trying to be faithful and godly. And even there, even you to somebody submitted to Christ, to somebody submitted to obedience and trying to be walk this out in a way that seemed faithful at the time, it was breaking your heart and it was breaking your mind and it was breaking your body. And so everything that I've ever known about God says that what what it looks like to be in a flourishing space, space with God is um, actually flourishing. So um, that faith on the other side of faithfulness is its wholeness and its health and um, its joy, which is not the same thing as happiness, but there's joy in it. And and what I saw with my eyes around that curve was the constant opposite. And even from people like you trying with all their might to follow what they consider to be a faithful line of celibacy. And so one thing I really respect about you and your story, well, there's so many things, but as you said earlier, um, you sort of looked at life like a dual citizenship. And one of the reasons you waited so long to share your story was that so you could figure out, I mean, this just goes to your your integrity, but so you could figure out how to tell your story of being Christian and gay and honor both groups, which is quite a fence to straddle, um, especially just right now. It's so charged. I, I wonder if you feel like you accomplished that um and and how would you how would you discuss your very sincere endeavors um to honor both because i think that you have
0: yeah you know it's super weird to, again dual citizenship i've got passports in like you know the gay tribe and the christian tribe these are two tribes that yeah. you know historically have not gotten along real well and uh this was one thing that i it's one reason I delayed into my thirties for coming out because I'm watching the carnage. I'm watching these two tribes fight each other to the death. And I'm feeling super conflicted and trying to just figure out how am I going to navigate that? And so, but, you know, before, I, before I came out, to be honest, things were, you know, pretty easy. Like when I was just in that kind of white male Christian camp, meaning that's how people viewed me, you know, particularly people from that time, right. that was a pretty good gig, you know, like it's, it's the sure. best gig around to be honest. And I didn't want to own my gayness, you know, like I didn't want to own my Mm. sexuality. I mean, at that time I was more familiar with Albert Moeller than I was Harvey Milk, you know, like those, those are the people I was, Mm. was reading all of the, you know, leaders and, you know, in that space. And so episode 35 of Blue Babies Pink, I read an article called uh, Becoming Minority. And it really was me trying Mm. to describe this journey of letting go of my own pride. You know, because I had my own crap to deal with through this whole journey. And that was one of them was, Brett, you know, why are you so fearful of this? And why don't you want to be thought of as a gay man? You know, and again, I'm Mm -hmm. super embarrassed to admit that now, because that is, uh, that's indicative of the kind of pride that I've carried. But, but, you know, all along, I've known there are great people in both camps. Wonderful people. I have fantastically lovely gay LGBT friends, and I've got amazing Christian friends. So, yeah, it's been hard to be in both of those camps, but to be honest, it's been a really fun adventure. You know, I love advocating for faith, you know, for Jesus, for grace, for forgiveness, the core parts of our faith that are so beautiful and so true. And then I also like advocating for the humanity of LGBT people and to try to
1: convince,
0: you know, uh, people of faith to be more caring and more empathetic in how they engage. Those. And so, my goal in writing Blue Babies Pink was to try to honor both camps. And everyone wants to jump into this conversation pointing fingers, and I, I tried not to do that. I tried to say, you know what, both of these groups are have really lovely people in them. And what's interesting is both of them view themselves as you know an embattled minority, which is also kind of interesting. That's I mean, right. They, they kind of both have a chip on their shoulder. But you know, we're all I kind of view it as we're all we're all doing okay. Like in America. Mm-hmm. I mean, I got married a few weeks ago. Like how many yeah, times yeah. in human history could you publicly get married to another man and like not be burned at the stake? You know, like okay. that's good. And then on the flip side of it, you know, for all the fears around religious freedom, my friends of faith, they're doing okay. You know, mm-hmm. they're, they're not locking the Christians up in jail. So most, for the most part, most of the, both of these groups were doing okay. Now that's not to say mm-hmm. there's not still tons of work to do in both of these groups, But at the end of the day, I think we we have a lot to be really, really grateful for. And so that's kind of how I try to approach a lot of this conversation.
1: right guys, quick break to tell you about something I'm super excited about. So listen, if you're feeling like you spend too much, eat too much, own too much, waste too much, you might want to check out the seven experiment video series and books I developed and take the seven week challenge against excess that literally changed our family's lives permanently. And hey, if you'll use the code podcast at checkout, you'll get $10 off any package. And if you already have the book, and some of you do, we have a package for you too, and the code still counts. You can find out more about all of this at the 7 Your optimism is just crazy. Like, I don't even understand it. Um, And so I want to, I want to go back just a little bit because I want to get us all the way back up to, I want to go before Blue Babies and then I want to get to Brett and Brett. So if if we can go backwards, just one click, can you talk just for a minute about what it was like for you and anybody who's read your work knows this already, but just for the listeners, um, to, when you initially came out, who did you come out to? And how was that season of just sort of slowly emerging in truth and in, in, in honesty and, um, and then move us forward into Blue Babies Pink? So my
0: strategy, I had a lot of time to think about it, so I had a strategy. (laughs) Yeah, My strategy was to first, and I I recommend this to other people who may be closeted, first come out, to your A team. Yes, good. I love you that. You know, who are the people in your life who like they have your back no matter what? Like if the world just is burning around you, you can count on these 4, 6, 10 people yes. to have your back. And so, in my late 20s, I began to have my first coming out conversations with um some of my closest friends, a few fraternity brothers, a few friends from back home, people who I knew would not flip over the table and run out of the room and, you know, and and freak out. And so, uh, so yeah, that, that I think was a smart move because it gave me someone to confide in. So when I was then beginning to consider, okay, Brett, how are you going to just come out kind of more broadly and I don't think everyone has to do a big dramatic coming out thing but for me I needed to because it's such a mental burden mm, that's a good way to, to just put it. constantly be thinking yeah. about it it's, it's to constantly have that that little tape playing in your mind is really burdensome and stressful and so for me I needed to just like level the playing field and just be like guys this is me love it or hate it if you if you hate me now that's fine like you can just move along like you uh, LGBT people, we we play this mental game of constantly trying to figure out how so and so is going to react. So for me, it was part of my healing to kind of make it a big, more public thing. And then and then I did make the decision, which I don't recommend to many people, of writing you know ninety thousand words about it on the internet, which <laughs> <Right>. I did.
1: <laughs> that was
0: unusual in your case. Yeah, it was a little bit much. But again, I, I felt like that was a calling thing. Um, I felt like yes. God wanted me to do that, and I, I cringe saying that because I cringe when other people say that they think God told them things, but, but I do, I felt deep in my spirit that was a story that needed to be out there. um, and just to own that in a really private way and to give people the chance to understand, you know, we live in Mm -hmm. such a knee jerk society that, you know, for some, if they hear that so-and-so's gay, you know, they write them off. And I wanted to say, Hey, write me off if you want, but if you don't want to do that, I'm going to give you the chance to re-walk with me down all these little roads for the last, you know, 20 years of my life. And, yeah. um, and I'm really, really happy with how it turned out. And I, I would not change if um, it feels so good. It feels so good to just have that part of my story out there and to just have no more fear around yeah. what so-and-so is going to think because you can Google me and you can see it. And I'm fine with that. It's just... Yeah. It's so okay.
1: Um, so that yeah, that was my first introduction to you was Blue Baby's Pink, which you wrote as a series of – you released it in a kind of a series. Was it 44 parts? Do I have that number right?
0: Yeah, a lot, 44, yeah. Yeah,
1: yeah just rolling them out one at a time. And um, I was struck by so many things when I read Blue Baby's Pink last year. Um, I've, what pulled through for me first right out of the bat was how incredibly – funny and whimsical and generous it was. Um, because sometimes coming out stories are (laughs) devastating. And it's not that your story didn't have some devastating parts because it did. Um, or they're just um they're so sad or they're so angry or which all of that makes perfect sense to me. I that is not me criticizing. It's just me saying when I read your story, I just couldn't believe how generous and spirited was and how funny it was I didn't I didn't know you. I'm like, this guy's funny. Like (laughs) I don't gay or not gay he needs to be a writer um and and it's got some really beautiful photography it was like beautiful to look at and i powered through it i think i told you in a day i mean i that's all i did um, for a day and it was so um you really told it uh, you should be proud you should be proud Thanks. of the way that you told your story and the, the leadership that you showed, uh, with it. Because of course now at this point, I mean, do you have any idea how many people have read that thing?
0: I think about a hundred thousand people have like engaged with it on some level based off of like, cause yeah. you know, it's, it's a blog and it's also now a podcast. And so That's right. I've looked at all the numbers and I, I really don't know, to be honest, but I I've heard from lots and lots of people. So it's been really, really sweet to see people, um, read that story. And, and I was clear from the beginning that, you know, the point of the story was not to sway anyone in theology. Like that really yeah. was not my point. The point was just to say, hey, it's worth looking at the stories of people who are walking a different road. And I felt like, you know, I'm sort of a, I'm a storyteller by trade. That's what I've done sort of from a career perspective. And so I kind of felt like Brett, you have a unique position to tell this story in a way that, you know, I love hearing you say, you know, you're laughing one moment, maybe crying the next. Yep. I wanted it to have some emotional texture to it so that people could really see that, Hey, this, this story is hard and it was dark mm-hmm. at times, but there's a lot of light. There's a lot of light and there's there a lot was. of light in my story. There's a lot of light in all of our stories. And so there's different times where we have to engage with the darkness or the light, but but I wanted both of those things to shine through because some people have really traumatic stories and That's I have, right. like you said, I have tremendous compassion for that. Mm-hmm. My story was, I would not call it traumatic at times. It was hard, difficult, challenging with a bout of anxiety, but all in all, I had a lot of grace and a lot of people who loved me really well and got me through those tough times.
1: We're going to have obviously everybody listening. We'll have all these links available for you um, over on the transcript page of my website for blue babies, pink. And what, what, you did with a very masterful hand, which is not easy in this in this particular space. Is you've essentially given everybody, no matter who they are, or where they are, on just on LGBTQ inclusion or affirmation or just theology in general. Everybody across the spectrum has an entry point into your story. Um, it doesn't exclude anybody. You you've somehow set a table um, where people can pull up a chair no matter what they believe or what they're not sure about and feel very welcomed into your life and into your story. It was so, so moving and so human. So very, very tender. So before we move into new Brett, um, one more thing about Blue Babies Pink. So you said that one of the goals behind the blog and now the podcast was to encourage other people who are struggling, not just necessarily with an LGBTQ story, but honestly with anything they're ashamed to talk about, and because in your in your story, that's where you have seen all the healing and the flourishing take place, um, was sort of in the telling, um, in the in the transparency. So I wonder if you could talk for just a second about that and. Um, Tell us what kind of response you got when you first began launching Blue Babies Pink. Um, And I wonder if you were surprised by that and and what you have learned in saying something that seemed really, really scary and hard, but you said it out loud.
0: Yeah, Jen, you know, we are all so addicted to what other people think of us. You know, this is not a uniquely evangelical addiction. I think everyone has an element of that, but it is so deep in us to just crave and to mull over and to obsess over the validation or the affirmation we receive from others. And so this was my story, you know, all through my twenties, just this crippling fear of my life on the surface was so going so well and looked so pretty, but deep down this horrible, horrible uh, fear of people finding out my true story. And so Um, I am just so blessed in that I had the chance to just burn that fear to the ground, (laughs) you
1: know, like
0: gossip mill. And I'm like, we need to just burn the gossip mill down, just sneak in at night and burn it down. Like, because we're so many of us are held captive by what so-and-so thinks, you know, whether it's mom or dad or Susie at church or Bob at work, it's just this, it's a terrible American addiction. And so I have just been on this journey of just trying to unravel that out of my soul. Um, you know, Proverbs 29, 25, I loved this verse in high school and I love it now. Fear of man will prove to be be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. That's fearing, fearing what people think. And it's an obsession in this day and age, particularly now with, with Instagram, you know, putting all the pretty images in front of us. And so uh, it has just been so freeing to just, again, let let that, that cat out of the bag, let that secret out. And to just fully own my past and my weaknesses and my uh, struggles has just been the best. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm on a big vulnerability kick right now, just encouraging people as vulnerable as they possibly can. I mean, Brene Brown, bless yeah, her heart, she's been pounding she's our this drum. We need more people actually living this out because uh, mm-hmm. the addictive nature of social media is forcing everyone to constantly put forth their best self. And I think we're actually need to be putting forth our realist self, because that's, Good. that is where, man, the emotional health really takes off. And I've, I've gotten to live that out the last couple of years and it's just been the best, you know, to your question about how, what was the initial response like when I first mm. published blue babies, pink, to be honest, it was pretty positive. Like I got yeah. cobs and gobs of messages from, you know, some kid I went to seventh grade with and mm. like some old lady who played the piano at church and, and most of them were really kind, you know, uh, for all of the negativity around the gay conversation, most people are still are mostly open minded about it, you know, and of course, there are those who are not. And so I got mm-hmm. tons and tons of unfriendings on all the social media things. You know, it's, it's funny, like it came in waves, like, some people would leave me like they left whenever I came out. And then some people left when I announced that I was dating. So it's, it's kind of funny like that, how people can't handle various degrees of, of the gay experience. But um, mm-hmm. but yeah, it's really been I've been very blessed um, that most people have been very loving and supportive.
1: I, I'm, I'm watching you like in front of my eyes, just like flourish. It seems to me like you are living your very best life and that has to have something to do with Brett Harmon, just at least something. (laughs) So I am like, just overjoyed for you that you have found love and that you have found marriage. Tell everybody a little bit about Brett and who consequently now you guys, I don't ever know what you settled on, on your names. (laughs) Did you ever come to a conclusion on that? So put that in the story and tell everybody just a little bit about your (laughs) really like fabulous wedding. And, um, it was just such a joy to watch, you know, we were coming except that we were hosting a wedding in our backyard (laughs) at the same exact time.
0: As you you know. were so missed. The hat makers were missed yes. for sure. Yeah, yeah so um, Blue Baby's Peak ends with me making the decision to to begin to date or the, how I worded it, opening myself up to love. And so I jumped into the dating pool in my 30s. So, you know, to for the first time in your life to begin dating in your 30s is really weird. <laughs> um,
1: You're behind. Yeah, <laughs> yes. but the
0: advantage I have, you and Brandon did not have, is we have the internet, which has uh, online dating, which is uh, one part amazing and one part awful because uh, it can be super stressful. But I, I did the online dating thing, you know, and just really was trying to just to see what it was like. Did that for a couple of years and um, yeah. met a boy from Alabama named Brett. And I am a boy from North Alabama named Brett, right. um, which was super weird. But we had the same name, but his name was Brett Harmon. And uh, we went on the first date. It was sort of a disaster. But then three months later, <laughs> we went on a second first date. Yeah. And um, and we began to date. He was kind of like me. He had been closeted really up in his kind of late 20s as well. Yeah. And so Oh, man. Uh, I can't even to talk, Jen, about right. just how sweet that has been. Um, you know, I think there was a fear that I had in all those closeted years of this little voice that said, Brett, you know, if you were to date, if you were to date a man, you know, that's not that's that's broken. That's backwards. Right. It, it would not work. It would be, you know, a terrible thing. And what I found right. the opposite was true. Yeah. It was um, just so sweet to have a companion. You know, Jen, like I wrote in Blue Baby Spink about, you know, back in my, my really dark days, I would just imagine coming home from work and having someone there, you know, like having someone in the kitchen. And so Hmm. literally last week, like I had this moment, I walked in and, um, Brett Harmon is in Hmm. the kitchen and he's, uh, he's cooking a roast chicken and, uh, yeah, like you don't, that sounds so simple. And for so many people listening to this, like that's their everyday life, but for, Hmm. for, for someone like me and Brett, who we never, you know, we never thought there would be a chance of love or of companionship or a yeah. family. And um, so my gratitude uh, for the life I live now is just, it could not be higher to just have someone to share life with, have someone to come home to um, and to do dishes and laundry with, you know, It's so yes. it has been, um, and it, to talk about emotional health, I mean, it has just righted my spirit yes. in the most joy filled um, and holy way and has, mm. Given me just a new outlook on life. And um, he's such a, a kind and loving person. And we yes. are just doing our best to, you know, employ all that marriage advice, you know, that we heard like from the church growing up, totally. like serving each other and loving each other and being faithful to each other. And so yes. we are just in Marriage 101. So if you've got any tips, you know, we'll, we'll
1: take them. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy <laughs> for you both. I just, I, Brett. Harmon is so delightful. He is so dear. I mean, you have found such a wonderful companion and i'm just it's so it's so wonderful to watch you both just flourish and um and it'll be so great to watch your marriage unfold and deepen and um, grow just like all of ours did and um because right now you're just flying high okay did you what did you decide on names because now you're both brett and brett and so i what is this private So it's funny, Jen, I was actually,
0: this has been private, because to be honest, me and him, we we did not know for the longest, because it's so (laughs) confusing when you have the first name, like, being gay is already hard with the name thing, (laughs) because like, you're having, are we hyphenating? Are we joining? Are we coming up with it? So... Anyways, I actually decided I'm going to announce this on the For the Love podcast with Gen <gasps> So, Whoa, this, uh, is to make? this is exclusive okay. take. This is it. This is it. This is you you're getting the scoop here. So, okay. long story short, I am becoming a Harmon. Um, you are. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I couldn't totally settle in with just being like Brett Harmon. So, I'm going to go by at least online and then hopefully in person bt so my that's my initials brett trap which i've kind of been called my whole life people call hey bt you know so i'm gonna be bt Harmon.
1: and um i like this
0: yeah it's a big change but like at the end of the day there's a lot of reasons but you know brett loves his last name he doesn't have like other you know kids carrying on in the name and so you know what it was great and i'm excited and it's it's really fun so yep i'm a harman
1: Okay, this is so exciting. That is a wonderful decision. Okay, so listen, a few weeks ago on the show, I had a new friend on. Her name is Sarah Cunningham, and she's behind um, what's, what she calls um, free, mom, free Mom Hugs. Movement. And so they're doing this most basic thing. Um, her son came out to her years ago, which sort of spurred this on. It's making these huge um, ripples in, in communities really all over the country. So she's going to Pride parades all over the place with, um, a little homemade button. I mean, this is not like high tech. This is very low tech. Um, a little button pin on her shirt and it just says free mom hugs. Right. And so she's offering hugs to just whoever wants them. And that's just it. That's the beginning and the end of the story. Um, because she says everyone deserves a mother's love. And as you know, a lot of people, um, have lost their mother's love, um, when they came out. And so I wonder what would you say are some ways that we, as let's as a church, um, as a society, as neighbors, as family members, friends, classmates, coworkers, like whatever the relational connection is, um, how can we love the gay community better? Um, How can we love LGBTQ kids better and adults and their families? How can we do this better? Give us some ideas.
0: Well, I'll say this. I love what Sarah Cunningham is doing. It's super inspiring. I've not had a chance to connect with her, but love it. I have a soft place in my heart for parents. On this journey, parents who are of LGBT kids, and I, I lead a small group called Harbor that some of those parents are involved in, and this is the conversation we're having every day: is how can they love and connect with their kids better? And so I yeah. think the question you're asking: how can we, the church, individually, you know, how can we love better in the broader culture? We all know why that is, and yeah. things that have happened. Um, you know, despite this, you know, I am just amazed that sort of the kingpins of Of that world, the writers, the authors, the thought leaders, the pastors, you know, it Mm -hmm. seems that they're still waging this war against LGBT people, you know, Uh, there, I still see articles written on a weekly basis of all the things that we're dealing and grappling with, there is still this fixation on opposing, uh, you know, gay marriage, gay, gay, whatever. And, um, and it, it can be super discouraging at times. I mean, of all the time that was spent and invested in the late nineties, you know, opposing gay marriage and as a gay married person, I'm thinking, you know, all of the prognostications about how this was going to be the great fall of society. I know we're only three years into the you know, gay marriage ruling, but I'm not seeing that. And what I'm seeing in the, my friends who are gay married is an incredible amount of flourishing. It's people living That's incredibly right. uh, boring lives. You know, they're literally right. your next door neighbors and all we That's want right. is to live a normal life for the vast for majority sure. of us. Most of us are not out looking to sue cake bakers. We're not out looking to oppress and oppose people of faith. We are literally just trying to live the most normal life that everyone else wants. And so I say that today, On the macro level, there are these things happening. And so that does create, again, a new generation of fear in current LGBT people, particularly those who are younger and more vulnerable. So I'm a big fan of, though we cannot control the macro, we can control the micro. So obviously, if you've got LGBT people in your orbit, in your ecosystem— love them, reach out to them, take mm. them out to dinner, you know, just ask them what they need. A lot of, a lot of these people have been abandoned by their families, super tragic. And, mm-hmm. you know, to just be invited into your home for a meal would mean so much to just be asked, Hey, tell us your story yeah. free of, you know, would be quite mm-hmm. healing for a lot of these okay. people. You know? You've also got people listening and in your life, maybe there are you know, gay people of faith who are on that single and celibate track that I was once on. And I feel very strongly for these folks. I don't hit them over the head and say, get over yourself and just go date. That'll fix your problems because they authentically think that's, you know, that's what they believe God wants them to do. And I have respect for that. Those people, they need your support. If you've got someone like that in your church or in your community, they need a sense of family and they need someone to love them as well. So, you know, honestly, Jen, I think if you live in a small town, I think you have the most important role to play Mm, in this interesting because our our big cities have an infrastructure in place where you can find some sense of community or support there's you know social services that can help if you've been true but in small towns i cannot say enough how you know there's some Mm -hmm. little community of lgbt folks in your town no matter how small it is if you look hard enough Mm, you'll find it maybe it's the gay straight alliance at your local high school you know Go sit in on one of their meetings. If it's only six kids in a classroom, bake them some cookies, open up your home for a meeting, do something, you know, just to try to reach out to them and just to love these folks because that is that is really what, what they need. I mean, Jen, go to a freaking pride parade. Like... Mm-hmm. I mean, there's such a disconnect and pride, even pride itself has such a stigma around it that I'm like, I've been, it's not right. that bad. And if you see a guy in a thong, like yeah. you will survive. You will not die. It's okay. <laughs> like maybe you'll see some stuff that's weird. Maybe you'll see some yeah. stuff that you won't agree with, but maybe you'll meet some people and do what Sarah's doing, attending these events yeah. and giving hugs and just being the face of Christ in a non-judgmental loving way, because I'm just convinced that uh, mm-hmm. that that's, that, is, that is the jam. That is, the, that is it. And I think you know end of the day, mm-hmm. I also talk a lot about the issue of disgust. I think we all have internalized disgust around this topic. and mm-hmm. I say that because I had it. I had a sense of self-loathing because what the culture has taught us mm-hmm. about LGBT people, um, you know has been so yeah. toxic. I mean, Gen 50, 60 years ago, it was criminalized. You know, and and granted, we've come a long way and I'm so thankful for the positive strides, but uh, that disgust runs really deep in all of us, and our communities. And so I think the more that we can just talk people off that ledge and open up new stories to get people's, the compassionate parts of their hearts to engage and and to engage in a healthier and and better way.
1: Mm, That's so good. I'd never actually thought about um, the distinction between being just a, an ally in general in a small town versus a big town you're right I mean in a big city you can find you can find your people but that is a really important distinction to make and I think what people will find and you know this is true um, is that if at this point you are not you know, not deeply connected to any, um, gay people or gay couples. And it feels like a mystery to you. And it's sort of a caricature in your mind of, of what that means and what that looks like. I think what people will discover is when they begin to like sincerely love and then ultimately do life with, um, their gay neighbors and church friends and, you know, family members and coworkers, um, it, it, it will, it might shock you how, um, how wonderfully nurturing and flourishing those relationships can be. And I, and I, I think a lot of the preconceived ideas that have been built into us um, that you are referencing just fall away. I mean, they just fall away. Like it's just like you said it a minute ago, you know, we have a ton of gay friends um, here in Austin and they're just mostly boring. They're like accountants (laughs) and like, they're like nurses, you know, we're just all paying our bills and going to dinner. And so, you know, not some big othering that you think it is. It really isn't. These are just our ordinary friends and neighbors and um, and and loving one another is healing for all of us, not just the gay community. It's good for all of us. It's good for the church. Um, it's good for our own stubborn hearts. Um, let me ask you one last question because um, you mentioned this. There's still such a... <sighs> Um, just intense oppositional space um, that is f- alive and well, um, especially in in a faith context. And so um, your faith, obviously, you've made it perfectly clear, is a huge part of who you are, um, both then and now. And yet there are people in your life who share the faith, um, who may not share how you live your faith and and sort of your sexuality, your marriage. And, and so there are people in your life um, in your faith life with whom you deeply disagree on things, things that um, they may be holding up a Bible, right? To say, this is why you're wrong and this is why I'm right. And so I wonder if you could just give us a little bit of advice or counsel on how you have learned to get along with people or honor them in some way or um, who are in staunch disagreement with you and, and how is it, or do you maybe keep them in your life in any meaningful way?
0: Yeah, Jen, I think it's time. I mean, I am just every day crushed by the <laughs> the finiteness of time. We are all dead fairly soon. A hundred years mm-hmm. from now, no one yep. everyone listening to this dead. will be dead. Unless maybe there's an infant in the car yep. of somebody, you know, who's still alive. But like we yep. are running out of time and we I am just seeing so many people waste so much time in their anger. And I I think there is time, there's a time to be angry and there's a time to, you know, fill the streets with our righteous anger. But I think we have got to just be so careful with that. And so I have tried and worked really hard on my own soul to to stay in a really healthy place uh, and avoid the path of bitterness yep. because i see a lot of people going down this path where they have been wrong and they have been treated unjustly and i have so much compassion for that but it is leading them down this dark dark path and and you know when we dwell and when we simmer on those things it can really begin to infect our our character and so i just don't think we have time to sit around all day hating other people. And so um, I think we have got, at the, end of the day, we've got to give people the space to believe how they believe. Even, even when they, you know, we disagree with them, even when we are convinced that they are wrong and we are right, you know, people are doing the best that they can with the knowledge that they have. And yes, sometimes that leads, you know, down some bad paths, but you know, we don't want to allow oppression and injustice. But in our personal lives, if we just know that someone mentally or ideologically disagrees with us, I, have the, I take the position that I'm going to give them the space for that. I'm not going to hold that against them. I'm not going to assume they're a terrible, mean, hateful, or bigoted person. And I think the second part of that is resisting the desire to change people. And I did this for so long. I tried to pound the table and make my case and use the best argumentation that I could to change people. And Jen, I just, I came to the point and I felt like it was God teaching me this it's an unhealthy compulsion it's an idol whatever you want to call it like the the compulsive need to set people straight to you know to change them it's just not healthy and so um, i have just given up on that so i don't i don't have a desire to change people you know I, I would like to think that i can be a person of influence and if i am telling the truth in a in a respectful way maybe over time they will choose to change but that's not my job and so i just think a lot of us we've got we've got to stop wandering in the desert looking for validation from everyone, you know, I'm that way, like for so long, I wanted so-and-so to validate this, you know, and that's just, that's not what I need. I'm mm-hmm. not addicted to validation and affirmation anymore. And okay. so, you know, the online piece complicates this. I do think that you know, everyone's living two lives. Right. There's their online persona and their real persona. What I've learned is, Uh, I despise some people's online version of themselves Mm. and in person they're really they're really lovely and really great Mm. so I try to just remind myself of that these are real people and that they have their own problems and a lot of times they're just lashing out um, they're lashing out uh, against something Mm. in their own life but I think the greatest battle is is the temptation to let hate roost in our own hearts and so I am just constantly on guard to try to keep that and I I'm not perfect at it some days I get really pissed off Mm. and I will tweet Days and I regret that. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, just keeping it all in perspective and having a, that outlook I think is helpful.
1: Uh, well said. Spoken like the son of a preacher. Um, (laughs) All right. We're asking everybody in this faith series, which has been amazing. And you are the grand finale and um, so unanimously chosen by my tribe. They wanted to hear from you. So we thank you so much for your just generosity of spirit and coming to tell your story. So we ask everybody in the faith series this, I wonder if you could give us either, either a quote from someone who has deeply inspired you, or it could be a scripture um, that helps you sort of keep your feet on the path that gives you strength or encouragement, something that you just reach for.
0: Jen, I knew you were going to ask this because I've listened to your other sure. episodes and I'm so excited. Yeah. So I am late to the party on Thomas Merton. Um, oh, yeah. Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Catholic writer, yep. activist, theologian. He's He's deceased now, but I discovered a quote recently by him, and this is what I want to share. And this is. This has just been healing to my exhausted cultural Hmm. soul. Here it is. He says, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence to which the idealist most easily succumbs activism Hmm. and overwork. The rush and pressure of modern life are a form, perhaps the most common form of its innate violence to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to violence. The frenzy of our activism neutralizes our work for peace. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom, which makes work fruitful.
1: Wow. That's powerful. Right? Wow. That's so good.
0: I mean, if you're like me, like I just, I feel like I spend my day just hung up on all the yeah. things that are wrong and things that are. Um that are making me increasingly despairing at times. And it's not my job to fix all that. And there's times for self care and to just disengage from that and to just focus on all the positive things around us. And so that's, that's been speaking to my soul. lately.
1: That is fabulous. You guys, we will, we will write that out in its entirety over on the transcript because that is worth saving. That is a beautiful end to this amazing conversation. My friend, I am so glad to know you. I am so lucky that you have come into my life. I'm so lucky to know Brett Harmon. And I am just, I'm, I'm thrilled to watch you. I want to thank you for what you've taught me and what you have shown me, what you've demonstrated, not just not just with what you've written, but kind of your character and the way in which you write it, the way in which you tell your story and the way in which you hold tension. And um, it is really uh, marvelous. It really is. And I find it almost rare um, to see somebody with your caliber of integrity and truthfulness and, kindness. And so you are a gift to us, to all of us. And, um, I, I, I can only imagine what it was like when you were younger and on the threshold of telling all these things and saying all these things out loud, but we are immensely better for it. Um, it has been a gift to our community that you've done it. And so I just commend you in every way for your courage and your, um, Vulnerability and your contagious joy. And it is just really something to watch. And so, thank you for coming on today. Thank you for telling your story to my listeners.
0: Thanks. jan you're the best. I appreciate it.
1: He is so dear. He is so, so, so dear. Um, I thank you for listening today. I hope you loved his story. If you have not already read Blue Baby's Pink, I promise you it is worth your time. Um, you will enjoy it. You will laugh. You will cry. Um, It's such a good glimpse into such a lovely person's story. We'll have all of those links, as always, over on my website at jenhatmaker.com, underneath the podcast um, link. And we have all kinds of stuff over there. I, I know I always bang this drum, but that is the most amazing page that my assistant and partner, Amanda, builds out for you. There's all these links and all these quotes and additional resources, and the whole thing is transcribed. And so um, definitely be using that resource if you are not already. Um, And so we'll have all of Brett's information over there for you. So you guys, this wraps up our For the Love of Exploring Our Faith series, and I have just loved it. Loved it, loved it, loved it. And I'm excited to invite you back next week into our next series. So much fun for the love of summer. We have some of the most amazing guests line up. We're going to talk about everything you want to talk about. Travel, kids, summer fashion, um, vacationing with children, um, all sorts of things, food. It's, it's all in there all summer, all the time. And I'm tickled pink about my guests. And so you are not going to want to miss it. Come back next week and we'll kick that series off you guys. Thank you for being such good listeners. We're about to hit 6 million downloads. I mean, that is just no joke. You guys tune into this. Um, We have a lot of subscribers and um, somebody who knows something about the internet, which is not me, um, just told me this week that of our subscribers, almost 90% of you download every single week's episode. That is really high. Thank you for being so committed. Thank you for coming back week after week. It's literally our joy to bring this to you. Um, so between me and my producer, Laura, and my assistant, Amanda, we work so hard on this podcast because we love it and we love bringing it to you. So thank you for listening. <laughs> that makes it worth it. Um, and so if you haven't already, go over and subscribe and give it a little review. Give it a little rating. That's helpful for a podcast. We appreciate it. And also, we're always listening, you guys. So let us know what you'd like to hear. Let us know what series you'd like to see, what guests you'd like to hear from. Um, We're always working in advance on that. So we are paying attention to what you love. We look forward to starting For the Love of Summer with you next week. Have a great one, you guys. Hey, guys. We're back for another segment of Jen's Favorite Things. So this is the part of the show where I share about some wonderful companies that are producing amazing products and giving back to charitable organizations and really worthy nonprofits. Plus, they have exclusive discounts and extras just for you, our podcast listeners. So here are today's favorites. Make getting dressed the easiest thing you do all day with style challenges, an online personal styling program that gives you all the tools you need to build a stylish wardrobe at a fraction of the cost of a personal stylist. So get $10 off with the code for the Love10 at stylechallenges.com. That's it for today's show. Hope you enjoyed this chat. Be sure to subscribe to my mom's podcast and give it a thumbs up rating if you like it. From the whole Hatmaker family, I hope you have a great week and see you next time.